You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, uh, we got an all-questions-considered episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast today, which uh, these episodes of the podcast are special. We don't always do them. Yeah, kind of our way of saying ain't shit going on. That's what I was going to, that is, you just took the words right out of my mouth. I was just going to say, you might as well subtitle these, these episodes. Ain't shit else going on. Ain't a damn thing happening. So this, except there's a bunch of little stuff happening. This is an episode where we basically turn the show over to the listeners. We're going to do a whole hour, uh, doing nothing but answering your questions. Uh, so that should be pretty fun. We got, we got more than we could possibly get to. Um, so we should dispense with the pleasantries, but before we get into the the question and answer period, I did want to remind everyone, Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club, we've set the date for that, right? It's the Monday after Thanksgiving. Right. It'll be that show. American Thanksgiving, too. American Thanksgiving, not no bullshit Canadian Thanksgiving, right? They have no. Thanksgiving up there? I think it's today. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, And we're doing the book Ridiculous. to light us, to guard us. By UFC light heavyweight Sean O'Connell. That's right. Uh, that's available uh, in ebook format, I think, for all of your ebook needs. Uh, it's pretty long, so if you want to take part in that, you should get started on it. And uh, we'll be sending out uh, calls for your thoughts. You could email us your thoughts as we get closer to that episode. But just wanted to send a reminder so y'all don't forget. Yeah. And especially since some of you actually seem to know what the hell you're talking about with like the fantasy slash sci-fi genre we really need your insight because expert analysis yeah we don't get down with too much of that not much all right well let's start uh all questions considered ben i'm gonna kick it off Woo! first question this week comes from rory mcdonald well really he who he writes parenthetically after that yes that is my actual name luckily mma is not popular enough for it to be annoying <laughs> He writes. You mean Roy McDonald's not popular enough for it to be annoying? John Jones might this, disagree. I, I think I would have to look in the, in the in the the files, but I believe this Rory McDonald is from Scotland. Okay. He writes. Given the increase in understanding of TBI and the apparent move away from regular hard sparring, what do you think an elite fighter's camp looks like in ten years? Are you seeing a change in the frequency and intensity of sparring at elite camps? Please discuss. And then he, about saying please discuss, he says, I figured I'd throw a curveball by keeping it traditional. Yeah, all right. So good starting question there from Rory McDonald. This is an interesting question. Yes. Because a lot of high-level fighters are starting to change subtle things about the way they train. And, and mixed martial arts is such a young sport that in a lot of ways people are still sort of trying to figure out the, the do's and don'ts the right way and the wrong way. And in fact... Uh, what was it back in July when the UFC had its press conference where it unveiled uh, its drug testing policy? A pretty big part of that press conference, even though it got far fewer headlines, was that it also the, the company also announced plans to sort of to to try to uh, centralize aspects of training and recovery and 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 injury, you know, rehab and stuff like that, which probably has both positives and negatives for everyone involved. But 
that's kind of a long-winded way of saying the sport is young, the training is all still sort of evolving, and so uh, it's possible that we could see some dramatic changes take place over the next decade. Yeah. Well, you know, and just anecdotally, I feel like I am hearing more fighters when I ask them about stuff like this. When I was asking around about that story I did on headgear, whether guys use headgear and sparring, whether it actually helps and everything, and one of the things I'd heard from a lot of the guys, especially some of the older veteran fighters, was that they were doing a lot less sparring these days. And some of it was just general wear and tear on the body, but some of it was definitely thinking about brain health long term. And I think that you you have to adjust if you're a fighter. If you're, you know, a 20-year-old fighter and you got like three amateur fights, then you probably need to be doing some sparring. You need to get that timing down and get that live action in there to feel comfortable in the fight. You don't want the first time you get hit in the face to be out there in the in the ballroom at the Hilton yeah, with 200 of your closest friends watching you. Where you're wearing just some basketball shorts. You got yeah, the big five. Maybe with the tag still on. <laughs> yes. And no, I've, I think we've both been at those local events where we've seen some dudes get hit in the face or get kicked in the leg and make a face like they didn't know that was possible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you don't want that. But you don't need to be doing the same frequency and intensity of sparring, I think, when you're a 28-year-old fighter with, you know, 16 or 17 pro fights as you do when you've got two or three and you're still kind of feeling your way there. And I think that's hard for people to make that that mental change. I think it's one thing that's hard for a lot of those guys is they, you know, you got so much riding on this fight that's coming up. A lot of it is going to depend to, like, is the other guy better than you? Is he going to be better than you on that night? There's all this stuff that you don't really know about. So you have a lot of fear and anxiety and and doubt about it. And the way they try to assuage that, I think, sometimes is just through sheer work. Like if I just do more in the gym and just put myself through more, then that will necessarily equal a good result. And it won't necessarily. Yeah. But you don't want to feel like you left any hay out of the barn, you right. know, like you left it in the field. I think you are going to see... you can beat yourself before you even sure. get in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're going to see a lot of changes in the way people train over the next decade or so. I also think you can't underestimate, though, like some of the old school mentality and maybe some of the stubbornness. I don't know if that will fall away during during that time period. Uh, but you're, you are dealing with a contact combat sport. And just if you look at the way football teams train, football's you know more than 100 years old, uh, there's still an awful lot of old school hitting and, and uh, you know, machismo mentality that surrounds that sport. That is changing, too, but now. Far less as, than there was five years right, ago. As science around brain health begins to increase, that that's all changing, too. My gut tells me it'll be cyclical, that you'll probably have, like, new waves of training come around and people will do less contact. Uh, and then some camp that does a lot of contact will have one really good fighter and everyone will try to copy what they do. Uh, that's kind of the, the nature of the beast. But it's a good question to open up. With, thank you, Rory McDonald from Scotland. Ben, what do you got? Well, I got a question here from Jason Munch. He writes, is there any situation where you could see Reebok cutting their losses and walking away from MMA and the UFC? Would Dana admit a failure if they did? I think the answer to the first question is yes. And uh, like when the Reebok deal first started and and the, the, the debut and some of the early... Uh, uh, trial runs, I guess you could say, were kind of a disaster where they got everybody's name wrong on the back of the, of the jerseys and they misspelled words during the unveiling and the public reaction to it seemed 
almost unilaterally negative, at least on social media. Uh, we started to ask questions about whether Reebok had an out clause in this thing and whether they might look to to bail a lot sooner than like they were contractually obligated to stick around for. Uh, but now I feel like some of that has died down a little bit. I don't know that the the line of Reebok, Reebok fight gear is an overwhelming success, but I feel like maybe they weathered the storm of the initial like negative reaction. Uh, and, and now they're kind of hanging in there and, and the, you know, the bottom line might be that Reebok got into this thing for fairly cheap. Uh, right. They got the entire UFC for much less than what Adidas got, uh, James Harden or somebody like that from the NBA recently. Uh, so, you know, financially it might still make sense for them. Although, uh, you know, they did say that they're going to continue to, to like change the designs and, and redo the, the like fighter kits every season or every year or something like that. So uh, it's possible we get ourselves into the same mess of negative stuff next year. You do get the feeling that Reebok must have had some second thoughts at, yeah. at some point. There were some rough moments. As I think a lot of like people from the actual corporate sports world probably do once they get involved with the UFC. There has to be a moment where they're like, oh, holy shit, what did we get ourselves involved in here? Uh well, there, I mean, when you're sending out tweets where you have to be explaining, like, look, we're not responsible for anybody getting fired or what the fighters are getting paid. Please stop yelling at us. Like, that's not that's how you know that things inside the Reebok offices are not super rosy at the moment. Right. And then I think the answer to that second question about whether the UFC itself would ever admit like failure. No, the answer is no. They've never done that with anything on any level. As we discussed a week or two ago, it seems like company policy, in fact, maybe the only company policy to just never admit when you've been wrong. In fact, as I, we've seen happen before, like when I believe Spike TV, when the UFC Spike TV relationship ended, the UFC went from complimentary to we hated those fucking guys all along Spuke. in about three seconds, which I think you would probably see happen if the Reebok deal went south. They would probably be like, well, those fucking... It, Uniform sucked all along, and everybody knew it. It was probably what they well, would say. Well, you know, and they've done the same thing in reverse. I was looking up old stuff uh, while working on this Fighter Association story, and it was when the UFC had their video game out by THQ, and Dana White would go on uh, talking about how EA Sports was a bullshit company, put out bullshit products. THQ was where it was at, and then when they jumped over after the collapse of THQ to, to EA Sports, now feel a little differently about him. EA Sports is the best there is. Next question this week comes from Emil Feibiger. He writes, how do you guys, have you guys got an argument that justifies that you like violence? Because that's what MMA is. I still can't explain to people why I like it without sounding a little bit like a psycho. I can say it's the martial art, the technical aspects, but it's still people that purposely try to hurt each other. And that's, that's just wrong, right? Help me out here. It's wrong to hurt somebody who has not agreed to be hurt. Yes. I think, and I think it's weird to me when people can be like, okay, MMA is so violent and, and uh, the violence is the only appeal for it. You're a bunch of bloodthirsty savages, but I can't wait to see a high school football game on Friday night where it's or, teenagers or, or smashing the, heads. The most popular sport in America, the National Football League, which is like so kind of desensitized from the violence and so used to the violence that I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, like a grown man, like a 260 pound man will be felled by injury on the, on the, the field. And he'll be writhing around like clutching his knee or his ankle and, and unable to stand up. And one of the announcers will say, well, he's a little bit dinged up. Slow to get up. He's slow to get up. Right? Shaking up on the play. There's violence inherent in a lot of things. Movies. Television, music, sports, and yeah, they're they're right. You're right. There is violence inherent in in mixed martial arts, 
But like, there's also a lot of strategy, and 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 like in terms of combat sports, I would argue like one of the more strategic and nuanced sports out there. Uh, and you know, I always feel like I have to say this, and and I'm actually not lying about it. Like, I feel like the violence in mixed martial arts is often oversold by the people who are trying to get other people to buy pay per views for sixty dollars. But my my guess is that people who people show if people show up just for the violence, they probably walk away disappointed a lot of the times because a lot of times there isn't any blood. A lot of times there isn't, you know, a, a slobber knocker of a fight. Uh, a lot of times there's technical battles that take place on the ground or 15-minute fights where guys kind of circle each other and, and hunt and peck with the striking. I feel like to be really into this sport, you have to be into the strategy of it a little bit and you have to appreciate the grappling aspect, certainly, because that's like 50% of it. Yeah, you'd think that, but then you go to a live event and you realize there are a lot of people out there that are just screaming for somebody to get sure. punched in but the those head. Pe- would you say that those people were hardcore MMA fans, or are they just people that like walked in off the strip in Vegas? I would like to think that they're not hardcore MMA fans, but I think that there is that subset of hardcore MMA fans. Now, the thing about is it wrong to like the violence, one of the things that I like about MMA, and I've said this before, is the extent to which it is sports without the metaphor. Like, it's, you know, it's not that it's so much more violent than football or anything else or, you know, rugby or any other contact sport, but it, it takes away all the other stuff. And, you know, we don't, we're not cutting away when the guy is down on the ground. That's the big part of the sport is it, it looks at the violence, I think, a little more straight on than some of the other sports, which, uh, they don't want to admit the extent to which that's part of the appeal. Uh, and I think that fighting is, at least in that sense, like a little bit more of a pure sporting competition because it's, it's not, you know, where we're trying to take ground from each other or rack up certain points, like by means of violence. The violence is kind of the point. And, and that's how you win the fight. And I, I think that there's some, like, really, essential human thing that happens when you get two people in there who both want the same big sack of money uh and this is the way they they determine it i i mean i think that that's it's fine to like that in that context i don't think it necessarily means that you're an animal or uh you don't understand the difference between violence in a agreed upon capacity for the sake of sport with safeguards around it and just like going out and kicking people in the head on the streets what's your next question Okay, my next question. Uh, Ross from Ohio. He asks, So Henry Cejudo has a fight coming up, and assuming he wins, he is the likely next contender for the flyweight title. Only thing is, he doesn't want to fight in Vegas as a message to the Athletic Commission and their policies. While I respect his stance on the issue, it seems like he is shooting himself in the foot with this. He is an Olympic medalist, sure, but he hasn't finished a fight since May of 2013. He also fights at 125 pounds, which is a weight class that not many promotions include. If his bosses decide he has too much trouble to schedule, I can see him getting cut loose after one loss. I know he has competed at 135 before, which he would likely have to return to if he left the UFC due to the lack of opportunities at flyweight. Do you guys think the honor aspect of taking a stand against the home state of the UFC is justified, or poor long-term planning in an under-promoted division? Please discourse. You know, a lot of people will take the All Questions Considers episode as a cue to just stretch their legs, right? <laughs> just to write us some long-ass questions. Yeah. But in answer to this question, uh, I think it can be both, right? I think strategically, in terms of of his standing inside the UFC, it's not good for Henry Cejudo to do this. Uh, I think in terms of the principle of him 
not wanting to fight in Nevada because of what they did to Nick Diaz and, and probably what he sees as the potential to do to other fighters as being like the principled and moral thing to do. So like, yeah, I think you have to make, I think he is probably consciously making that sacrifice to take this stand. And maybe he imagined more people would jump on, on board with him than, <laughs> than what ultimately did. But yeah, I think it's like pretty clearly he is choosing to make this stand uh, despite the sacrifices that he's going to have to make. And let's not pretend like if it, like if we thought he was the best opponent for Demetrius Johnson and the UFC thought that the fight between them might make more money than the average flyweight title fight, that they wouldn't just kick that thing over to California. Yeah, that's what I wonder is what the UFC's response to that would be. I mean, because I could see the UFC feeling like, hey, you know, you'll fight where we tell you to fight. They have kind of taken that uh, approach in some certain in, in some circumstances it has seemed like the best way to get the UFC to make you or to want to make you do something is to say that you absolutely won't do it they seem to like to kind of flex that power at times um but it doesn't seem like well you got to do Demetrius Johnson versus Henry Cejudo in Las Vegas like that doesn't there's plenty of places you could do that fight maybe because it will be just as underwhelming at the gate in California or Montreal uh, as it would be in Las Vegas. So you could work with that if you have to. I would be curious, though, like if some other bigger star, somebody of the U.S., like, for instance, Ronda Rousey's pretty fired up about the Nick Diaz thing. If she said, I'm not fighting in Las Vegas, and the UFC would probably have her penciled in in their minds for, like, you know, some July 4th Vegas weekend uh, fight cards that they have to do, that, I think, would be a more interesting issue. Next question this week from Steve Burt. He writes, with Michael Bisping's fall from the middleweight contender list and Jimmy Jimmy Manoa clearly not being a top light heavyweight, who do you see as being Britain's first UFC champ or is all hope lost? Discuss, dear fellows. So a very uh, British end there to this question. I think they're going to be waiting a while over in the UK. They might want to do the thing where like the city of Portland tries to pretend like it roots for the Mariners up in Seattle. Okay. Because they, they might just want to jump on the Conor McGregor bandwagon right now, even, you know, if they're not culturally opposed to that idea. Yeah, I was going to say, there might be some longer-term historical feelings that go... It's not exactly like Portland saying, okay, Seattle's close enough, but I see what you're saying. They they, they might be able to get on board or, with some Conor McGregor. Or do this, become the biggest Bellator fan there is. Okay. Because you got Liam McGeary over there and Michael Page who could very well be a Bellator champion, it feels like, at any point. Can you watch Bellator in in Britain? Oh, they got Spuke TV over there, don't you think? I don't know. I've heard... I, I don't know exactly what the situation is, but I seem to recall seeing uh, some UK fans and European fans complaining about the lack of access to Bellator. Uh, if someone out there knows who the, the next or the first British UFC champion is going to be, write in, let us know. Next question. Michael Bisping. What? Still him, you think? Is still their best shot? Hey, it's a crazy world out there. Next question. Some guys get killed in a plane crash. Michael Bisping. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, okay, this is from Tom from Red Car UK. Okay. That's not real. UK represent. Red Car UK. Uh, 
On last week's podcast, you both predicted that Sage Northcutt will be handed a bunch of easy fights, much like Paige Van Zandt, in order to market him as a winning fighter. You went on to compare it to Conor McGregor's introduction to the UFC. However, we know that the UFC was criticized for the way in which Conor was given a title shot too early, even after beating some arguably tough opponents, Dustin Poirier, Dennis Seaver... Isn't this the opposite of PVZ's current run of fights? I'm assuming here that PVZ will not be given a title shot or even a fight with a top contender for that matter in the next 12 months, completely unlike Connor. What, in your opinion, would be the correct rise to the top for Sage when, in the last year or two, had the UFC, quote, done it right for any new fighter? I feel like these are like different branches of the same approach, really, though, because... Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zant are comparable not only because they look like brother and sister, but because they're both super young and super green fighters that we all uh, have pointed to and say they have huge potential. And that like that's kind of a new product for the UFC. Those people didn't necessarily exist like ten years ago, right? No. You had you had nothing but the top fighters in the world who had already proved their mettle and, and deserved to be there. Now, for a lot of various different reasons, you know, not only like the expansion of the of the schedule, but also uh, just the the fact that the sport is in a different place in in terms of its evolution. You've got these kind of young phenoms showing up in the UFC maybe earlier than they would have before, and therefore I don't even think it's that wrong to give Paige Van Zandt and Sage Northcutt uh, the chance to kind of grow and develop and mature. Uh, and so and so putting them against opponents, I don't want to say opponents you think they could beat, but like opponents that are comparable to them in skills and experience, uh, I don't think is necessarily wrong. And, you know, I, I don't know that I would even say what they did with Conor McGregor was wrong, even though that's that's kind of a different situation. Oh, that's what you'll say now. I, was, I seem to recall you were the one who kept getting fired up about Conor McGregor's quick rise it, up the ranks. I mean, it rubs me the wrong way in some ways, but that's because I have, I have been around this sport and, and enjoyed the UFC that didn't approach things that way. But I, I don't think you could make the argument that Conor McGregor didn't deserve to be in the UFC at the time. And that's kind of the difference between yeah. these athletes. Like, Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zandt are still developing prospects, whereas Conor McGregor is kind of a, a finished product who was nurtured en route to a title shot because yeah. of his popularity. I don't, I don't think that those are the same things, really. I think one of the things, and I think we talked about this a little bit on an earlier podcast, is that with Paige Van Zandt, I question the extent to which you really can uh, keep her away from tough fights for too long. Look at her next one. She's going to fight uh, Joanne Collarwood, which... That's not an easy fight. You know, Joanne Collar, what if she shows up uh, and she's in shape and got her mind together? She can hurt you. And she's an experienced fighter. So uh, I don't, I just don't think that division really allows you to, to do that for as long. Um, but it is still telling when, as we're watching a Paige Van Zandt fight, Joe Rogan expresses genuine concern that she might do so well she would have to fight the champion, Joanna Yanjechik. And my, what a bloodbath that would be. And I still think that's going to be the case whether, you know, if she gets a title shot uh, in a year or two years, if Yuena Yanjaychuk is still there, I think it's a big problem for Paige Van Zandt. Uh, and I don't know you're, if you're going to be able to stop that. I think that that's the, the big difference between, you know, the Conor McGregor situation or Sage Northcutt is with Paige Van Zandt, you're just, you're going to end up with your hand kind of forced into a title shot probably before you really want to, uh, as opposed to kind of rushing it. And then the second part of this question was which young fighter have they handled properly, which I think gets us into uh, the cross purposes that we often run up against in this sport, where are you talking about handled properly from the point of view of the promoter or handled properly from the point of view of what we as fans might want to see? Because 
those two things are sometimes differently different and and like we end up uh sometimes like tossing them together in the same basket and 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 do people definitely come at this from different points of view i mean from from a promoter standpoint i think they clearly handled conor mcgregor the right way right because they have they've turned him into what we think is an mma megastar whereas like from a fan standpoint maybe it would have been nice to see him fight a couple more top contenders before he he rolled into a title shot but so that's a that's a difficult question to answer for a lot of different reasons i think yeah yeah, but I mean, I think Conor McGregor really helped you out there if you're the UFC. Uh, that you know, you you might have done some things right, matchmaking and promotion wise, but that guy can kind of just get on the mic and and do a lot of the work for you. So he makes that job pretty easy, I think. Ben, this all questions considered episode of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss the opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. The NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them where to look on the internet. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Next question this week comes to us from Jeff of Atlanta. He writes, All this back and forth between Uriah Faber and TJ Dillashaw is starting to feel a bit high school or middle school given their diminutive statures. But if it, it culminates in a fight between the two, I would say it was worth it. Hashtag would watch. Should Faber stay close to fighting weight in case Dominic Cruz's knee decides to betray him once again between now and his fight with Dillashaw in January? You know, I don't think Uriah Faber is one of those dudes that has a big problem getting too far away from fighting weight, and that's one of the things the alpha male guys are always kind of known for. You know, this is one of those situations where I almost feel ashamed of how into the whole narrative I am of, like, former teammates become sort of kind of enemies and a fight that the division might actually need and could really benefit from has a chance to happen and it would do big business and be a great thing for that division and be a, probably an awesome fight. And yet I also feel like, man, are we the kids on the playground who just egged two dudes into a fight that they didn't really want to do? What have we done? Not only that, but this is like every dude in this scenario live in their gimmick. Right. Like you're like team out. Apparently team alpha male has an hours long podcast that they do. It's like three hours long video simulcast thing that they do on the Internet because everybody in mixed martial arts has to have a goddamn podcast now. Glad we make it look so easy. And throughout that, Uriah Faber is doing his thing where he's like, oh, it's cool, bro. You know, man, I'm just totally chill and not mad at TJ Dillashaw, homie, even though he stabbed us in the back, bro. And like just doing his Uriah Faber thing. Like to the hilt. And meanwhile, you can tell TJ Dillashaw is just a young guy, man trying to provide for his family. And you got, then you got Dwayne Ludwig crying, crocodile tears. Yeah. Okay. You know, everybody in this is just being themselves. I guess so. It's kind of wonderful as far as I'm concerned. Even though, when let's also point out the magic that Uriah Faber continues to weave in the UFC where he's managed to set himself up now 
as a potential opponent for either TJ Dillashaw or Conor McGregor. Like either one of those. Or Dominic Cruz. So Dominic Cruz should win the title. And hashtag would watch any of that. Yeah. Which for a guy that's already had 87 shots at the UFC title and has not won any of them and is like 47 years old, that's pretty good work <laughs> for your eye favor. Like this it guy, he's still got it, man. You know, and I feel like maybe uh, because of Uriah Faber's charisma and his well, big cachet of just popularity with MMA fans, I wonder if he's if TJ Dillashaw is maybe not going to get a fair shake from a lot of fans in this dispute because of that. Uh, because like you said, I feel like it's really easy for people to latch onto this narrative that like, oh, he stabbed the team in the back and betrayed them. And I feel like once you kind of hear the things from his perspective where you feel like, hey, I wanted to keep working with this coach. I feel like I had a lot of success with him. Uh, he kind of split from the team. This other team offered me money to come train there. I don't know how long I'm going to get to do this sport. All this stuff starts to sound like a pretty good deal for you. Um, you know, maybe Uriah Faber doesn't think it sounds like big money because Uriah Faber's kind of rich already. But for TJ Dillashaw, I don't know, man. I I can't really blame him. You can maybe talk about the maybe the way he's handled it or that, uh, you know, he shouldn't have said certain things about it in the press or whatever, but I, I can't really fault him for too much here. There is no way on God's green earth to fault TJ Dillashaw for this decision, man. Do you remember when they showed his house during the last UFC embedded leading up to his last last fight? And it's like, oh, TJ Dillashaw just lives in a normal, like, two-bedroom bungalow somewhere in, in Sacramento where he needs to paint the trim, like peeling paint on the outside. He's not living lap of luxury style over here. This is guy as the UFC bantamweight champion that needs to make all of the money that he possibly can while he is in this position to make this money. And if they are offering him what, like a 70 or $80,000 a year salary, he said basically to go up there and train with, with uh, the guys at Elevation Fight Team, man, you got to take that. There's no way you can turn that down if you're TJ Dillashaw. Yeah, what if uh, one of the DuPonts wants you to come train at his farm? Okay, well, then you might want to think twice. <laughs> With that, but Because you would already know, right? <laughs> because of past events, past histories. I'm just saying, like, I don't, I'm, I don't disagree with anything you said. I'm just saying I don't think MMA fans are always known for being as sympathetic as they should to those kind of practical concerns. I think it's way easier for them to jump on the, you stabbed the team in the back and you betrayed these guys who right, got you yeah, this absolutely. point. Absolutely, everyone than wants to, think to jump about, on the easy sports trope. Yeah. Because people ain't that bright. <laughs> yeah. Next question from Tom Jones this week. Turns out... Anyway, isn't it my turn to ask one? No. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're right. I did read the last one yeah. from I, Jeff of Atlanta. Accept, Sorry, Tom Jones. You'll have to wait. Accept your apology. Uh, from Jimmy Hall Haley? Halley? One it's of those. not that easy, is it? <laughs> I know that my friend and yours, Mr. Ben Folks, read the story by MMA Fighting's Chuck Mindenhall about the MMA judge that everyone loves to hate, Douglas Crosby, and how he seems to disregard the, the round format when he judges fights. That said, I have two questions. One, why is he still allowed to judge if he doesn't follow the rules, the only thing a judge is supposed to do? And two, isn't it better to judge the fight as a whole anyway? Discourse, if you please. I've been excluded from this question. So I should just, I'll just. Well, it, it seems like Jimmy Halley is just not assuming that you read Chuck Mendenhall's story. Which, have you read Chuck Mendenhall's story? Of course, yeah. Chuck Mendenhall's story about Douglas Crosby is amazing. It's yeah. great. In fact, Chuck Mendenhall at this point, his thing is kind of that he seeks out the MMA personality that we all love to crap all over. 
and humanizes that person, even if he like has to go through a ton of rigmarole like he did for Jason Thacker in order to get the guy on the record. Sounds like he went on some, some serious rigmarole here, too, with Douglas Crosby, who made him run errands all day throughout New York City, like through every uh, one of the boroughs, like, and then said, I'll get back to you about that interview. A different kind of rigmarole, though. Yes. And like, as a writer, as that's happening, you know that you have tripped fallen backwards and stumbled into pure gold you've fallen into a into a pot of pure gold at that point well once douglas crosby takes you to goddamn spa right yeah yes to the russian bath uh yeah no see as i was reading it um i was you know i started off thinking of it like if you'd ask me what i thought of douglas crosby i'd say he seems like one of the notoriously wrong judges that when you hear his name you you immediately think uh-oh um, and then he's had some of that weird stuff where his beef with the Longo camp and how he has a restraining order against him, uh, and his weird appearance on Chel Sonnen's podcast, which I think I was obliged to listen to just to hear that, uh, that weird interaction the two of them had. And I started reading it being like, okay, this is just one of those judges that we haven't been able to get rid of for some reason in this sport, and we should have. And then by the time I was done reading the story, I had a completely different opinion of him and yet still thought, hopefully he never judges another fight again. Right. I just had that opinion for different reasons. Right. He should not be allowed to judge because he's an insane person. <laughs> a very interesting insane yeah, person. Yeah, very interesting. What do you think? Like, at, clear, like maybe we can't judge. Maybe we can't judge Douglas Crosby. I See what it. I did there? Yeah. Uh, Take a moment and appreciate your handiwork there. By the same standard that we judge normal people. But, like, what do you think he thinks when he has a mixed martial arts reporter in his car for this entire day? Like, do you think he thinks he and Chuck Mendenhall are just hanging out? Or is he like, I'm going to do all this crazy stuff in front of this reporter just to, like, give him the story of a lifetime. Well, one hates to speculate on what's going through someone else's mind, especially if they seem as interesting as Douglas Cosby does. But, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you're just really like that, you don't realize the extent to which you're being kind of weird. Uh, so maybe he didn't really think that much of it. I do, though, like, when he basically explains his philosophy of judging, and you're like, oh, that's really, like, introspective and interesting and... uh a fun thing to talk about and not at all what you're supposed to be doing. Like you can't just make up your own rules for how you want to go out there and do it. And yet he's basically saying that that's what he has done. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really great look at that guy to be like, okay, I was wrong about you. And yet I was, my conclusion, I think still stands. I hope you don't judge any more fights. And it seems like towards the end, uh, Chuck tried to little, maybe walk him out of the sport a little bit and give him that, Hey, maybe they just don't understand you here, Douglas Crosby. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to tell your side of the story. <laughs> as for the last part of the question, is it better to judge the fight as a whole anyway? Um, I mean, for one thing, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. So, like, you don't get to make up your own rules as a judge. But uh, I think when we saw that in Pride, when they would do that, it's just you get the same thing that you get with how we judge round by round, which is that people tend to prioritize what they saw last. And so you, the same way you can steal around, I think that you're at risk of letting somebody steal a fight that way. And I don't know it necessarily gets us to a better or more fair outcome. The next question from Tom Jones, he writes, Turns out MMA's version of a diss track is a slam poem. As men of good taste, 
What did you think of the quality and execution of Nick Lentz's poem about BJ Penn? If Nick Lentz doesn't get the mad props he totally deserves from the MMA community, he should at least parlay this into a poetry book deal and get that sweet CME book club bump because we all know we would buy that shit. Did wow. you read Nick Lentz's poem? Yes, to I BJ did. Penn? Yes. What'd you think? What did you like workshop this with me? Make well, a criticism sandwich. Here's for what Nick I'll Lentz's say. poem. Uh, I don't know what it is about when an MMA fighter thinks, I gotta come up with a poem here, and the first thing that comes to their mind is, and it's gotta have like a really childlike rhyming scheme. And that rhyming scheme will change, like, throughout the poem. Like, I'll, the, the meter, uh, of the poem will change just kind of at will, and with no, and with no regard or, or sign that that's gonna happen, and then it'll go back. Um, but, I don't know. Maybe I, I feel like uh it's like MMA fighter. Whenever I hear like this idea of like you're going to write a poem or something like that, it's like your your idea of what a poem is came from fifth grade. Yes. You assume it must rhyme. Yes. If it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem, yeah. right? How would anybody know what you're, you're reading you a poem? just think you've written short, very short paragraphs, <laughs> a series of very short paragraphs. Uh This, as uh, Method Man's character Cheese would say from The Wire, this shit is unseemly. <laughs> Right? Like, this is kind of worse than when tons of people try to call out Michael Bisping. Like, nobody wants to see a young, virile, active fighter call out baby J-Pen. No. Right? We we got, we don't want to see this guy back in the cage. The last thing we want to see is Nick Lentz beat up BJ Penn yeah, what, in a think, sanctioned mixed martial arts. You think anybody's going to thank you for that? Anybody's going to be really glad that that happened? No. There's no real upside for that if you're Nick Lance. I mean, please, BJ Penn, do not be do not be tricked into this. You do don't you, need this, man. Do you think that Nick Lance was like watching old WWF YouTube videos and saw Lanny Poffo, the genius, the poet laureate of the World Wrestling Federation, reading poems off frisbees and then throwing them into the crowd and was like, "Okay, <laughs> no one's jumped on this one yet. Maybe this could be me." Yeah. Hey. Well, I mean, we've definitely heard worse ideas. All right, what do you got? Um, okay, let's see here. Okay, this one comes from uh, Chris Vaughn, who writes, Jose Aldo has received praise from fans regarding his comments recently in support of a fighter's union and the idea of monthly salaries. The response to this has left me scratching my head on a couple issues. Huh. One, so much of the feedback Venom directed towards the UFC when it comes to fighters unionizing. Shouldn't that Venom go directly toward the fighters? The UFC as a business should protect their business and margins at all costs, as any business should do. There are obviously ethical boundaries the UFC should stay away, stay within, and often doesn't. But with regards to union, it seems like a no-brainer for Dana and co. to maintain a healthy culture of fear around the idea of unionizing. If the anger fans direct toward the UFC was instead directed at fighters for not standing up for themselves, maybe there would be more action. I could just be a jerk, but I don't have much sympathy for fighters whining about their rights when the vast majority do nothing to better their situation. Two, monthly salaries? Of course Aldo would be the one to drop this gem. Maybe he thought it over, uh, thought it up over coffee with Dominic Cruz, Anthony Pettis, and Cain Velasquez? Discuss, Montanans. Wow, Chris Vaughn. Yeah. Coming out of the closet as just a jerk. Wow, maybe, maybe he's not going to appreciate that phrasing so much. Uh, okay. 
He I, makes valid points. He though, makes some yeah. very valid points. And you know what? Uh, and I have up on MMA Junkie right now. Okay, on now I see why this. it took you a minute to choose this question. Yeah. Because you were scanning through the list well, I had looking one. for one that would open the door to you doing a shameless plug for whatever bullshit you've written this week. Tell me when you're done so I can get back to my shameless plug. Okay, go ahead. Plug, okay. your, plug your shit. Uh, I have at this moment on MMAJunkie.com part one of a two-part uh, thing about the Push for Fighters Association and all the different elements of that and i see what he's saying here with you know shouldn't the fighters take the responsibility for why this hasn't happened like you can't expect the ufc to do it for you or to to invite you to do something that would make its business more difficult or that would force it to pay you more money like that's just not how businesses work and this is something i heard um talking to managers and stuff and one of the managers i talked to said that you know i asked what do you tell your guys when they say hey they got this email from the ufc telling me beware of the unions what do i do here and one of them told these guys like look if you're not ready to speak out in public and put your name on that stuff then then shut the fuck up don't bitch about it um because uh either you can be out there and be that person you think that other fighters need to be the guy saying hey we need to do this this is going to be the best thing for all of us or you can be part of the problem which is that it doesn't get done because fighters are scared to go out there and do it but you can't complain that it's everybody else's fault for not doing what you're not willing to do. And I think that that is the biggest uh, impediment to something like this, is that the the mentality of the fighters, they haven't gotten to that point yet of all joining together and saying, we want to do this. Maybe because they're not sure they do want to do it. Right. And that it also will take fighters who are willing to themselves make sacrifices that they might not personally reap the benefits of, because it could take a while to get this thing going. Uh, you know, an, an outcome of the class action lawsuit and any kind of uh, uh, wholesale change in how the UFC pays fighters and, and whether or not it's willing to recognize a fighters union. None of that could happen until a lot of these guys' careers are already over. So that that's you're asking for people to make a very selfless choice when involved in a very selfish business and a, a business that has a very small window with which to, to earn any money. So I think that there's a lot of people uh, – who who think of it that way they don't think they're going to get anything out of it so so they just want to kind of like stack chips themselves and and you know let everybody else worry about it after their their time is up but by the same token like the UFC totally benefits from that mindset right that they know that this is a very individual sport and that all these people are competing against each other and no one wants to sacrifice their own career for the betterment of anyone else and so that just plays to uh to their own, uh, to, to, you know, their own mindset, their own worldview. And I think that we do need to give Jose Aldo some props for being in his own way outspoken about all this stuff because unless I'm, unless there's somebody I'm forgetting, I think he's like far and away the highest profile fighter on the UFC roster that's been uh, willing to, to put his name on a lot of these different, like somewhat controversial ideas. Yeah. Although I do feel like with Jose Aldo at this point, there's always a 50 50 chance that if he, gets any pushback on something he says he's just going to say he was mistranslated yeah which is it's always handy to be able to say that yeah next question next question from den the fed all right i'm into it i've been listening since episode one you always ask for questions comments or concerns you've never said it had to be mma related Uh i got married saturday you both seem to be in healthy marriages any advice for a set of newlyweds huh okay do you have any advice for newlyweds? Here's something I will advise you to do, uh, and maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but 
One thing that my wife and I do is every year have kind of a State of the Union uh, address. Yeah, you guys are weird. Well, we like to think of it as like, let's let's sit down, let's evaluate how this is going and see if we want to renew the contract right. kind of thing. You guys are on a series of one-year contracts, like the, coaches involved in the Montana University system. Right. Uh, and I feel like that's a good thing to – because otherwise, especially over – over years, and if you're having kids and you get into – your idea of what a relationship is, it changes drastically because a marriage like with kids and everything, it becomes very different than when you're just like you and your girlfriend are living together. Like you're then you're basically, you know, two people – like at times you're kind of coworkers, like two people trying to do a job together. And that can be very stressful and it can also be difficult to remember that you're supposed to have a, a relationship, just the two of you, aside from that. So – Stuff like that, I think, helps you refocus and also to accept that your idea of what it is, what the relationship is now, might be different in five years. And that's okay. Yeah. And I, I would I would say all of that is true and would echo it by saying uh, I feel like the concept of generosity is one that, that is positive and helpful to keep in mind. Because like when you were involved in this life partnership arrangement, uh, even though it kind of makes me wince and feel weird to say that uh, – you know, you're going to fuck up and your wife is going to fuck up, hopefully in many small ways and not one or many enormous relationship shattering ways. But like, I feel like it's important to remember to, to like be generous with your partner and hopefully she will be generous with you, uh, you know, just in terms of, of uh, being patient and like, is there stuff that she likes? Is there stuff she wants to do? Does she want to... Sexually, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm hearing. I'm talking across the board, man. Doggy In style. and out of the bedroom. <laughs> okay. If doggy so style is the, is the weirdest thing you can think up, <laughs> man, I don't know. I know that's not true. Uh, no, man, I'm just talking like in life. Be generous with your wife and hopefully she will be generous back with you. Because uh, I feel like in some relationships that you look at, people make a fight out of like lots of weird little stuff. And that becomes a snowball. Yeah. And it's good to to, you know. Don't sweat the small stuff. That is a phrase I just made up here on the spot. Wow. I feel like this all this talk of generosity. Somebody's getting ready to hit his wife up for a loan. <laughs> she does make the this money. This jet ski make only costs $5,000 and we will get hours of enjoyment out of it. it it's a can't miss investment. Okay. As long as we're uh, asking weird questions that aren't MMA related strictly. Here's one from Ian Eiley. I don't know. I've just Get been shit together, folks. I've just been considering how many podcasts you've done together and how many fans you've gained along the way. I'd have to assume that you both must consider it a success, if for nothing else, at least for the nice smelling face wash. Thank you, Fulton and Rourke. That's right. However, what would you consider the negative impacts of doing the CME? Has there been anything about the whole process that has surprised you both? Um, I think it was, I think it's been surprising how successful this endeavor has been, considering that it, we kind of did it on a lark. Uh, and that we recorded every week at my kitchen table using some equipment that I bought off the internet for like 200 bucks. Uh, and that we kind of have the conversations on this show that we would have in private anyway. And therefore it doesn't necessarily seem like a huge imposition on either of us. Uh, so I'm kind of surprised week in and week out the, the sheer numbers of people that are willing to listen to us blather to yeah, one another. That's what I'm surprised at is how many people seem to listen to it and enjoy it and frankly remember it way better than we do because yeah. like every week i'll get multiple tweets from people who will just 
pick up an argument that I've made at some point and respond <laughs> to it without giving it any context. And I'll have to be like, okay, what's this person talking about? Did, is this something that I said on the podcast? Because... I might have to go back and listen to it to know what this person is talking about. It surprises me that now, occasionally when I still do go cover or travel to cover events, uh, how people, when they see me and they recognize me or something, will, like, it's the first thing they say now is like, oh, I love the podcast. And I'm always just like, you know, I do other stuff, right? Like, I don't even get paid for that. Like, you know, I, I, I write stories and stuff too, but no, now it seems like. Uh, I'm always surprised by how many people immediately mention the podcast. We did get also a couple months ago. I don't know if you remember this. We got that tweet from a, a person who was clearly from Europe or something, like communicating with us in English as their second language and like asked us why we don't do more podcasts. And I like told him it was because of the full-time jobs that we have. And he was <laughs> like, oh, what are your full-time jobs? And I was just like, I feel like this was lost in translation. Like that maybe he doesn't. Because I feel like we say it at the top of yeah, every show. Yeah, we mention it on every on every <laughs> show. Um, but, you know, nothing negative, I don't think. Like, this is, I think we would agree, the better, one of the better parts of both of our working weeks. And this, aside from the fact of that it is a, a time commitment that you have to make every week to show up and, and do the show, or else you're going to get hammered on social media for missing it, like... I don't know. I got no complaints. That's another thing I'm surprised at. Are we working how... on our relationship? This is like a flashback to the last question. You and I are working on our relationship right now. <laughs> how and consistently... I am being extremely generous. <laughs> how consistently we or how seldom we have had to miss one. That, God, that surprises we me. We should just pat ourselves on the back for that. Yeah. People, we don't get enough credit for no, that. No, not nearly enough credit. All right. I think it's your turn. Next question comes from Paul Peterson, and he writes, Are you there, Chad and Ben? It's me, Paul. I was wondering if we should hold off on putting all our eggs in Ronda Rousey's basket for UFC 193. Her last pay-per-view did stellar numbers and all, but that was this past summer. You know what else happened this past summer? Ronda, no last name, because I see her so often, I feel like I know her personally, was in two movies, exclamation point, one of which did ridiculously well at the box office. Once November 15th comes along, her star won't be white hot anymore. Also, her last fight at UFC 190 came shortly after the big July 11th card and the flurry of hashtag Woodwatch events. The UFC was on top of the world by UFC 193. The UFC won't be coming off a dynamite card anymore. Now, UFC 193. 194 is going to do well. I'm sure Ronda is a draw like no other, but can we really expect another 900,000 buys now that sh now that the curious sports fan and Ronda fans know that they can watch her do the damn thing in GIF format uh, on Sunday morning? Oh, and discourse. Okay. You know, I always wonder about the, the GIF format that you mentioned, that issue, how that's going to play out. But I don't know about her star being on the decline just because her she's not in any movies coming out so soon uh, or so close to this fight. I mean, she was just hosting Sports Center. Like she's obviously a, a far more of a breakout star than anyone else the UFC has. I still think a lot of those people are who tuned in just to see Ronda Rousey are pretty new, and they're probably going to be curious about this next one too. As long as the UFC can get the word out right before the fight to remind them that there's a fight on Saturday night. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't see a big drop-off for this one. Especially, I think that the, the UFC is putting a little muscle into promoting it already. So um, I don't think it's in any danger of uh, flying under the radar here. 
Yeah, it would be hard to duplicate the like media tornado that she made prior to her fight against Betch Cohea. But if anything, I feel like it's starting earlier for this event. Like you look around and like you said, she's on Sports Center and the New York Times did a profile of her this week. Uh it's sort of like we've already started into Ronda Mania for the Holly Home fight and, and I you know, only time will tell how that is able to sustain itself up until fight time. It's also a little bit strange that I feel like we are all kind of eternally waiting for for Ronda's star power to fall off, right? Like, and I think that probably speaks to the two, her singular importance in the company and her importance inside that division and the fact that, uh, you know, all of these fights that she is having are Ronda Rousey fights against opponent A or opponent B or opponent C. Uh, and in fact... It was hard not to notice when the first trailer for this event came out, the one where they cast uh, Ronda Rousey's sister as her, I guess yes. it was. And like you know, they and the showed, fake-ass Herb Dean. Yeah, the fake Herb Dean. They showed her discovering judo at the ripe old age of 11 or 12. Uh, it was hard not to notice Holly Holm appearing in that as an extra, pretty much. Just like yeah. as like... In the script, it would say Rhonda's opponent stares bullets at her across the cage, uh, but it wouldn't say who that was, right? Uh, and then I, you know, and as the 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 uh, promotional push has gone on, you've gotten a little bit more from Holly Holm, but at this point, it's sort of like Rhonda fighting whoever Rhonda is fighting, uh, and so I feel like that encourages us all to keep asking these questions, like, oh, can she sustain this? Is this is this one going to be weighed down? Like, are are, are people still going to be interested? And I think that's a valid question, but at the same time. I feel like we kind of have to start giving her the benefit of the doubt at this point. And then, like, the questions need to go the other way, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, will this one be as big as the last one or, or, you know, will we start to see a decline at some point? Not, like, can she equal the, her recent success? Yeah. Uh, here's one from Eric Murphy. The unified rules are about as clear on what is being judged in MMA as two people in a field pointing at clouds describing which one looks like a bunny. We know which rules are useless, but how the fuck buttons do we change them? I'm not talking about an overhaul. Let's keep it simple. One rule change, such as a grounded opponent being defined as two knees touching the ground rather than two feet and a goddamn pinky finger that we see so often. Uh, here's one where one hates to, to be cynical, but I don't see, I don't see a lot of those rules changing very easily, especially ones like this where you're basically taking away a rule. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't see that ever happening. I think it would take a lot. Yeah, and like you could, uh, you know, just massaging a single rule or taking in and out, you know, a, a single rule isn't going to change the the wholesale problem that you have with judging and and the rules and and how fights are officiated. Like even though he said that he wants to avoid that in this question, like that's kind of what you need is a top down full reimagination of what is happening here because the the uh the instructions given to judges are poor clearly we saw in chuck mindenhall's profile about douglas crosby the actual work that the judges do is disparate and poor <laughs> referees do by and large a poor job officiating you know uh, uh enforcing the rules the rules are not necessarily I mean, a the, few referees do a really good yeah, job if you do a great job most do a kind of a bad job uh, the rules themselves are often not self-explanatory and, and strange and weird. So like, yeah, you could take a rule out here or there, but, but you're still going to get yourself into a, the same predicament. And frankly, I don't know that there's an easy way to get yourself out of this predicament because if anything, we've learned over the past couple of years that looking at a fight and deciding who wins is an entirely, you know, 
subjective experience, regardless of what the rules tell you to do. Well, and this reminds me of the, another question that kind of piggybacks all this from Dean Draper, where he asks about, uh, and we had talked about this on the Bellator Dynamite broadcast, where uh, they kept talking about a briefing um, on a new definition for a 10-8 round, basically, that uh, we're going to see more 10-8 rounds or something, and hey, where does that come from, and why haven't we heard more about that? And and that fight was in California, so I asked Andy Foster from the California State Athletic Commission about it, and he was saying, you know, it wasn't anything huge, new, dramatic chains or anything, but just looking at the the definition for what constitutes a 10-8 round and saying that, uh, asking judges to focus on it as being when one fighter wins the round by a large margin as opposed to what it had said at some point in the past um, by an overwhelming margin. Um, I think little changes like that, where it's a change of kind of perception and you don't have to basically rewrite any rules to do it, I feel like that's within our grasp. And maybe that's what we should be doing. Is just, instead of you know looking all the way up to the, the top of the cliff uh, and trying to haul ourselves up there all at once, maybe we just look at the handhold just right above us and see if we can get there. Next question this week comes from Jason Kellner. He writes, any thoughts on Joanna Champion opening up as a massive minus 2,000 favorite over Valerie Letourneau? I know Joanna is an undefeated monster, but this seems a bit too lopsided. Discuss. Um, I think we were all surprised that Valerie Letourneau is your number one contender in the strawweight division. I know Tisha Torres was surprised. Uh, and I don't know. That, that Those do seem like very lopsided odds considering that Joanna Jacek is still a relative newcomer on the scene, even though she is the champion. And considering that all Valerie Letourneau seems to do is keep winning fights that they think she's going to lose. Uh, but at the same time, this seems like a bout that is made for Joanna Jacek to go out there and look good. Yeah. Tell me how Valerie Letourneau wins it. And then I'll start to consider whether the line is too lopsided. Cause I, I can't see it. I can't see how she wins it. Um, but Maybe, maybe like uh, Reebok, we're just a little too in love with Joanna Champion right now to see. We were blinded by it. Yeah, rose-colored glasses. Anybody who just gets so excited about free shoes, Reebok, you don't deserve her. Um, here's one from Patrick Kelly. With the report of an outrageous member of the UFC voting rankings being unprofessional, and as far as I can find, no one from Junkie, Sheridog, MMA Fighting, Bleacher Report, or Fightland having a vote in the rankings, what can or should be done to improve them? Now, did you see this, how some member of the rankings committee was apparently going at it on Twitter with fighters? I like did. The way you would expect just like a regular... John Q. Public. ...little egg on Twitter to be doing. Um, yeah, well, you, you don't have to look too like you just have to look at the list of people who vote on the UFC rankings to figure out what you're dealing with because like I've you know I've never heard of half the people on there and and those people are in theory our coworkers right but peers here's one where I feel like you almost can't blame the UFC too much for that because they tried to get the rest of us to participate in the the rankings I mean it wasn't like they they excluded us we didn't want to do it right because of all the the fraught problems that come with providing the UFC rankings that, that it's going to then use is basically part right, of its product. Basically writing them free content yes. they can put well, in Bruce Buffer's mouth. And also that that they have shown in the past a willingness to manipulate at times to, to serve their own means. So uh, I think that we all have very good reasons for not wanting to do it. Um, and they kind of, if they've decided they're going to do it, they got to go with whoever will do it, I guess. And so then you end up with, with something like that. I think that 
I mean, as far as what should be done to improve the rankings, it feels like a weird thing because every website has kind of done its own rankings. Mm-hmm. And then the UFC had this thing, which, you know, not most of the reputable media participate in. And yet, even we will still end up falling back on and looking at those rankings and using them as discussion points. Yeah. Like, it's kind of inevitable. Yeah. Like, I still think the thing to do would be if the UFC just said, like, all right, we're just going to take the rankings from, like, these five or six websites um, and average them out together. And then everybody can kind of check our math and be sure that we're not screwing with it or whatever. And then there's there that way there's no like here's us giving you something. You're basically just doing your own like aggregate poll by looking on the information that's available on our websites. I feel like that might fix some of this stuff. Yeah, it would be pretty easy actually to do like a consensus MMA media rankings. Of course, then you would also get into the situation where you would have Bellator fighters. In, right. the, in the top 10 in, in several weight classes, which is not what the UFC is looking for. Uh, but I mean, at least from like a media standpoint, I think it would be pretty easy for MMA media types to get together, create a set of consensus MMA rankings, and then we all use those like on our sites. I know that that from a content standpoint might defeat the purpose because everybody likes SureDog to have its own rankings. It's, you know, SureDog gets the clicks off that and MMA junkie. Bleacher Report now has a, a new, uh, MMA ranking system that we just started doing this week where much like Michael Corleone in Godfather 3, they pulled me back in, uh, <laughs> even though I vowed a while ago not to do rankings anymore because rankings are stupid, but, uh, it's back. You can go over there and check it out. All my votes. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure we're going to want to throw in with all your, your communist, uh, MMA media one world ranking system. Um, because I don't know if you noticed that we got the NOS Energy Drink MMA rankings over there. Oh, so yeah, that does make that, them seem more legitimate. Shit is branded, given that homie. they are corporate, corporately sponsored. Branded. That does make your ranking seem more legitimate. Next question this week from Ben Dundas. Oh, come on. She writes, is Gustafson <laughs> the best fighter to never hold a belt? If not, who would you say is? I think you've got to think pretty hard to think of someone better than Alexander Gustafson who has not held a UFC title belt, and to think of a person who has come closer uh, on multiple occasions. I might say Uriah Faber, if we're not going to count his mm. WEC title days. Yeah. And he's come pretty close. Yeah, Faber would be pretty close. In a in a heads-up, pound-for-pound, who is the better fighter competition between Alexander Gustafson and, and Uriah Faber, who do you take? Faber? Don't you dare try to pull me into a pound-for-pound pound discussion. Well, I mean, that's, how that's what we're doing. dare you? You bring up Uriah Faber, we're talking about Alexander Gustafson. I'm not sure how to compare the two otherwise. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. I, I guess I'd have to say Faber. Um, maybe I just feel like, though, we have more data to look at with we Faber. Do have, we do have more data. Um, I'm going to go with Gustafson. You can go with Faber. I'll, I'll call that a push. Okay. Um, here's one from... Uh, Jason Stiegel rhymes with eagle. Thank you. See, that's how you make sure we get it right. That's right. So what's really going on with Ben's pile of trash neck and his Twitter mailbag this week? He mentioned his fingers are numb due to all the neck injuries over the years. Do we need to be concerned with a talented young journalist like Ben dying soon? You see who I chose this one. Uh, and being replaced on the CME with a God-fearing, alcohol-abstaining, non-swearing, some-bitch journalist. Or would it just be Chad and his newest, bestest buddy, the old man getting the hand job on the couch? That guy would make an entertaining podcast co-host. Yeah, I think maybe the podcast would go in a different direction. 
It's possible, yeah. Um, and answer the question about what's going on with my pile of trash neck. I guess it is ongoing. I went to see a spine specialist last week. Jesus. Um, and what really was jarring to me was that the spine specialist was uh, an uncommonly attractive woman, which I was not totally prepared for uh, when she came in there. But uh, then seems like they're going to do some kind of steroid injection directly into my neck and maybe some physical therapy and uh you know maybe maybe the spine doctor will be like that she looked almost like the doctor in roadhouse so there you go you know if you were not in tremendous physical pain from your pile of trash neck i would point out what 1950s don draper bullshit you just pulled out being like <laughs> the doctor was a woman it blew my mind well, it's not that i she was, was a... physically attracted to her it's not that she was a woman that blew my mind uh but you know, usually you're at the doctor's office and they're like, do you have any any other questions? And here I'm like actually trying to think of some questions so that we can just I'm going to go ahead and ask my next, next question before you continue to dig yourself deeper into this hole. It comes from Rogerio Crandy, which I have a feeling is not Rogerio's f- real first name. Uh, <laughs> he writes, give me one good reason why Ryan Dwayne Bader shouldn't fight Anthony Kiowa Johnson. And I cannot. I cannot give you a good reason unless that good reason is that Ryan Dwayne Bader is going to fight Big Dan Cormier. Yeah, the only reason I guess I could give you is if the UFC decided they did not want to do the the John Jones going to get my belt back fight in a timely fashion. Because while I sympathize with Ryan Bader's position that he has got to feel like he earned the title shot at this point, I also feel like, man, we all know what what we want out of this. And it's unfair to Ryan Bader, and that sucks. But, yeah, he's probably just going to have to keep on winning tough-ass fights and maybe even having his accomplishments devalued by those of us until there is absolutely no one left. And then Ryan Bader knocks on the door and finds himself all alone there. Sorry. Yeah. What's next? Um, okay. So far, this was from Chris Girardi. Girardi? I don't know. Ah. So far, which UFC partnership do you think has been a bigger success or failure between Reebok and USADA? What have we learned from the first few months of the relationships, and have our Reebok woes permanently given way to fresher issues being brought up about USADA, or have we merely temporarily shelved our Reebok vitriol? Um, well, the USADA one is just kind of getting going. They just recently fired up the website where you can go look and see how many times people have, have been tested. Uh, I would say by almost default, the USADA partnership has been more successful because at least it produced uh, a groundswell of positive reaction. And despite that one article from Thomas Hauser that focused on boxing, uh, we still don't have any concrete evidence on, you know, why we should be skeptical of it. I mean, I think we should be skeptical of it. I don't think we have any concrete evidence that it, it is in fact a sham. Uh, but just simply by virtue of the fact that, that it is still in its infancy, we we have no choice but to but to feel positive about it until it proves otherwise. I think. I, yeah, I think the test is going to come when somebody tests positive and says, "No, I didn't do it," and then okay, then we're going to get a, a real look at what we're dealing with here. Or nobody ever tests positive, and then we're kind of like, <laughs> "Okay, this is, seems strange." Yeah, and see, that's the thing. I think we talked about this before, and you, I think, wrote a, a column about it. Like, how long can we go? Before, with with having no positive tests, before it starts to 
feel you like know, a problem. You know what would be really embarrassing for USADA? I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. If guys start failing their commission tests, oh, like wow. their fight night commission yeah. tests, then that that we would have to be like, what's really going on? We would. All right, let's do like a little that. little rapid fire okay. here. Um, what do you? Okay, here. Which of these is more likely to happen first? From Luke Hannawell. Demetrius Johnson versus T.J. Dillashaw or T.J. Dillashaw versus Uriah Faber? Dillashaw Faber. Chris Weidman versus John Jones or Chris Weidman versus Johnny Hendricks? Oh. Hendricks? Neither one. Anderson Silva fights again or Nick Diaz fights again? Anderson Silva. John Jones fights at heavyweight or Chris Cyborg Santos fights at 135? Cyborg. I'm going to go Jones at heavyweight there. Josh Barnett gets a title shot or Michael Bisping gets a title shot? Oh, Jesus. Barnett? Can we ask the audience? Habib Nurmagomedov fights for a title or Frankie Edgar fights for a title? Habib. Happens first? Yes. Oh, man, Frankie could fight for the title in two months, man. Uh, okay, ask another question. That was the, the rapid fire one. That That's one it? Fire off there. Um, let's see here. Has, uh, this is from Taylor Loyal. Has there been a fighter yet who has served as the model for the right time and right way to walk away from MMA? That's an interesting question. Not very many. Uh, can I mention friend of the podcast, Danny Downs? Sure you Seems can. Seems like he did a good job with that, segueing into MMA journalist. Uh, even though I know that she misses it, it seems also like friend of the podcast, Julie Kedzie, did a good job. Yeah. Now, segueing into executive, an executive position over at uh, Invicta. Yeah. Even though she had to move to Kansas City, well, which we would not wish on anyone. I think she just moved to somewhere else in Kansas. Oh, she did? Yeah. But still in Kansas. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I would say maybe Randy Couture. This the wow. the last time. Yeah, by virtue of the fact that by the time he walked away, he was too ancient to ever come back. We think, well, we hope they haven't announced that Fedor opponent yet. We think it's going to be Jaideep Singh, but they haven't haven't uh, confirmed I, that yet. I think whenever you can say beforehand, like, "Hey, this is going to be my last fight, win or lose," and then you stick to that. Um, I think that that in a way, is the right way to do it. I also, though, think there's something to be said for the way Rich Franklin did it, where well, yeah, he that's lost a good one fight, too. he kind of went away for a little while, cultivated other interests, uh, other opportunities outside the cage, didn't make an impulsive decision, took some time, and then said, you know what, there's no reason for me to do that one more fight on my contract, I'm done. Um, and, you know, just kind of made the announcement that way. I think that that's a good way to do it, because I always we always question that, you know, immediately after the fight kind of thing, you know, when the, the heartbreak is still fresh sometimes, it's tough to to believe it. When a guy's taken two years or something to think about it and then says, yeah, I'm done. I'm not going to come back and fight. I tend to believe that more. Next question. Oh, you you got the next one? Or was that you? I just asked that. From Javier de la Cruz, he writes, who is your favorite Game of Thrones character? Well, I mean, I got to go Tyrion Lannister there. He's he's the go-to answer, and I would agree with that. I'm going to say from a like kind of a craft standpoint, I'm going to say Jamie Lannister. Okay. Because when we first meet, the spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't either read or watched Game of Thrones and you aren't interested in spoilers, you may want to fast forward a bit. Uh, we first meet Jamie Lannister. He's doing it to his sister. Uh, and then he throws a child out of a window. And a couple of books and or seasons of television later, we realize he's one of the good guys. 
You're saying he has kind of an Al Swearingen type character arc. He does, and uh, uh, George R. R. Martin also makes like the kind of surprising and interesting decision, at least within the bounds of his fantasy series, to take away Jamie Lannister's best trait. Right? He gets his again, spoiler alert, sword hand cut off, yes. uh, and therefore has to like you know make something else of himself. So. From a from a purely craft standpoint, I'm going to say Jamie, Jamie Lannister. That is a good move on his part. Uh, here's one from Evan Wilcock. Which, if any, podcast do you guys listen to? Oh, man. You know what I listen to almost every week when I'm on the treadmill on Fridays on my long run day? I listen to the Hollywood, oh, this. the Hollywood Prospectus from uh, Grantland, and I just found out it has just ended because it seems like Bill Simmons' new media uh, venture just hired away a shitload of Grantland writers, one of whom was uh, Chris Ryan, who appeared with uh, Andy Greenwald on the Hollywood Prospectus television and movies podcast. So I'm in the market for a new one now. That was a podcast about television and movies? Yes. Okay. That no longer exists, so I don't know if my mentioning it helps anyone. <laughs> Maybe if you'd spoke up sooner. <laughs> I guess I should have. Uh, I listen to uh, Hardcore History, which I have recommended on the, the podcast before. Uh, my only problem with that one is since they're such like inv- long, involved podcasts, he, he there's a long time between when he puts them out. Um, although I was just – I recently drove up to uh, Kalispell this past weekend and re-listened to his uh, – Follow the Roman Republic series, which is just awesome. Um, but I also listen to This American Life. and mm, That's a good one. That is a good one. Also, Planet Money is and also Planet good Money. from NPR. Their other uh, podcast, Invisibilia, is also pretty good, although I would say less good than Planet Money and uh, Amer- This American Life. The thing I like about the Planet Money ones is that they're short. Yes, they, they are kind short. of fill a, a need, or fill, a, fill a, a gap in my podcast needs there. Um... What do you got? I don't, from Tang Cow writes, since Chad is basically a fortune teller now, how about you guys predict the main card of UFC 200? That's a tough question. It's probably too early to tell. Although you're going to wind up with Ronda Rousey. Yeah, but I was thing. just going like, to say that's the one thing I feel confident There's, of. there's no question about that. Um, depending on when John Jones comes back, I think it could line up pretty nicely to have him on there as well. Uh and then, the, and those would probably be your title fights, unless they want to stack them deep, and and do more than that. But uh, I think that's probably like the only two that we would be in the position to even forecast because of how things move. I guess you could put Conor McGregor on there, depending on how things shake out. You know what I would hope for is that the UFC would again do the thing where they build some backup plans into or around this event, just to kind of deal with the contingencies, because it'd be. A real damn shame if you had a great UFC 200 lineup and then injuries and stuff just ruined it. Yes, it would. It would be a damn shame. Well, we are almost out of time, Ben. Do you have any other like real quick ones that you had in front of you there? Or should we just put a fork in it? Okay, here's a weird one. Oh, okay. From Charlie Lowther. So I've mostly stopped watching MMA. I still like it, and I make it a point to catch certain fighters, but there just got to be too many shows, so I skipped a few. I realized I could have my weekends back, save a few bucks, and follow the sport mainly through podcasts and news sites. Do you think I'm unique? No. I think that you are probably quite typical, sir. I I wondered about this before, about how many people, if you're skipping fights and you're just reading about them on MMA sites, how long that, or listening to it on podcasts, how long can that maintain your interest? If you're not actually seeing the stuff that they're talking about. I'm sure that if you were a wily sort, you could figure out a way to see what they're talking about okay. without sitting through the actual event. Okay. I don't have any firm evidence to support that, but... 
Sure it's possible don't. that there could be videos out there somewhere. <laughs> anyway, we're out of time. That's going to do it for this week's All Questions Considered episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We tried to blast through as many of them as we could. We left a lot unanswered. Maybe we'll get to some of them next week because all we got is that Fight Pass show next Saturday. And aside from that, we might there be... There kind of ain't shit going on. There kind of ain't shit going on. So we might be in the mood to answer some more questions. You never know. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So you go to get your spine looked at, and you're surprised with the spine doctor, which I think is a technical term. She looks like Amy Schumer, but, uh, like, really fit. A fit Amy Schumer. Yes. Did you think of any questions to ask her when she asked you if there were any more questions, or? Yes. Yes, I did.